Welcome to the Talks on Law Illinois MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. Now for the interview. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely from here on the planet by Professor Franz Vanderdunk of Nebraska College of Law. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law. Professor, maybe before we jump into some of the legal issues, this topic is becoming more and more practically important. Why don't you give us a little overview of current space exploration and use? Well, to go back into history, when when the space era started in the late 50s and 60s, it was basically about two countries, the United States and the then Soviet Union, and it was basically about two things, military slash political and science. And those, uh, those summaries do no longer apply. Over time, we have seen an increasing amount of practical applications. Satellite communication, satellite remote sensing, satellite navigation are increasingly important for all sorts of human activities down on Earth. And that, of course, plays into the legal issues as well. Talking about satellites, I, you know, I saw a statistic in prepping for this conversation, the number of satellites in space over the last few years, it's an exponential growth curve. Yes, and it's going to get even worse with uh, current plans of sending thousands of satellites into basically low Earth orbit in the next couple of years. And that is one of the major issues that the space lawyers of today have to grapple with in order to make sure that we don't create unnecessary mess up there with all due dangers for our own activities and for other activities in outer space as well. Another key change is that, you know, when we thought of the space race, it was a bit of a sprint, a two-person sprint between Russia and the United States. Now there's a lot of other national actors. I'm thinking particularly of China, but also the European Union. Who else is actively pursuing Oh, spot on there. It's it's no longer limited to the United States and Russia and, and China. We've seen India uh, harboring serious plans of landing on the moon. We've had Israeli, Nigerian, Brazilian space activities. In Europe, everything is guided basically through the European Space Agency, but now the European Union has set its minds on a number of space systems as well. So we, we are living in a multipolar world also in outer space, and that of course raises a number of important legal issues as well. And one one last overview, I guess, highlight is what's happening with private industry. This has been really exciting for some of the spectators out there like me watching uh, SpaceX launch these reusable rockets. And there's a number of other significant players in the private space. Well, of course, the baseline is that the private sector only gets interested if they see a possibility to make money, even if it's a little bit further in the future. And we may be, to some extent, lucky that we have some of these angel investors who are willing to spend billions that they earn somewhere else on Earth on taking still an enormous amount of risk out there. These private operators do bring also their own host of legal issues, as you can imagine, because precisely because they're only in it for the money, even if it's in the long run, um, there may be a tendency to neglect broader public interests, uh, whether we talk about science, whether you talk about security or safety, or even the environment nowadays. So it makes life for a space lawyer much more exciting than it used to be, but also much more complicated. Let's talk first about some of the resources in outer space. What are businesses and countries 
most excited about or most nervous about currently? Probably two things. One is uh, water, which is an invaluable piece of material out there, not just for living purposes, for astronauts to give them something to drink or to grow their own food, but also to make rocket fuel. And the other thing is the general idea of using minerals which are already there, the so-called in-situ resource utilization idea, that you don't bring everything you need to build a habitat on the moon from Earth, because that's incredibly expensive but as much as possible use local resources. So there is a, there's a big deal of interest there. Let's talk a little bit about our closest neighbor, the moon. First off, who owns it or who has a right to access it or exploit it? The, the easy answer is nobody owns it, uh, or more correctly, the whole community of states owns it together. Because if you say that nobody owns it, it leaves open the possibility for someone to step in, but from now on, I own this part. And that is a no-go area. The Outer Space Treaty, uh, the most important treaty in outer space, uh, agreed upon in 1967 between all important spacefaring countries, agreed that no state could ever appropriate part of the moon. Did the Outer Space Treaty call for any type of supranational authority to regulate that? Or is it still on the state-by-state -state level to make sure that they're in compliance? They didn't call for an international authority in the sense of an international organization or body. The international authority, if you will, is international law as such, but the international law consists of treaties to which sovereign states decide whether they want to adhere to it or not. The Outer Space Treaty is the prime example of such a treaty, and by that token, they did agree on a number of rules of the road out there. But it's not like there is any organization, whether it's the United Nations or anyone else, ruling that area. And in that sense, it's basically like the high seas. It is often referred to as a global commons, which means that it's open to all states as long as they comply with existing international rules to use it, to explore it, to exploit it at the best of their abilities. And there's no single state which can stop that from happening for another state. So if no one owns it and everyone owns it, practically what would that mean for a nation or a company that wanted to set up a base or a headquarters on the moon? Well, that's a great question. And at the face of it, it is open. Now, let me premise this by saying that you have to make a difference between a private company and a state. The freedom of space activities, uh, like there is a freedom of activities on the high seas, is open for states in principle, in first instance only. And private sector operators depend upon the authorization of their state, whether they can enjoy that freedom as well. And if they do, the states are responsible and liable for what they do out there. So in that sense, there is a basic freedom for outer space activities. The problem with the exportation of mineral resources on the moon or other celestial bodies, which are legally speaking in the same basket, so obviously there are major differences between the moon and Mars or a small asteroid, but in legal terms, they're all the same. And if you want to exploit them, the only rule which is there is that it says you can't carve out a part of that area as a country and say, this is ours and everybody else has to stay out or only is allowed to get in under my permission. That is no go. But whether that means that you can actually allow private operators to go there and mine them, that is at least politically still an open question because the Outer Space Treaty didn't really solve that simply because it was not on the agenda in 1967. 
You mentioned the oceans as an analogy. I, I understand that when it comes to mining in the oceans, there is a treaty, a, a separate treaty that allows certain countries to apply for and receive mineral rights. I understand the United States is not a part of it, but there's no such analogous agreement on the moon. Am I correct? You're absolutely correct. There was an effort to create an, a sort of analogous regime back in 1979 with the Moon Agreement, but that is not ratified by by almost all of the major spacefaring countries, not just the United States, but also Russia and China and all the major other ones are not party to that, so we can safely sort of ignore it at this stage. So there is no comparable regime. So it's a little confusing. Let's say I wanted to set up my headquarters on the Moon and I you know, I represent uh, Botswana. Let's take all the practical implications out and all the costs out. Would that mean that the United States could then come onto my lunar compound and set up a building right in the center of it and say, look, you don't own this land. We all do. The first part, the answer is yes, they can come in. At least duly authorized representatives of the United States can come in to basically to check and see whether Botswana is not up to any violation of the requirements applicable to the moon in terms of no military establishments, no weapons and things like that. Uh, on the other hand, Botswana has the right to take reasonable precautions and say, okay, you have to give us a few weeks to make sure that everything is safe here. You can't just barge in like that. Again, practical things put aside. And the United States certainly cannot say, well, we're going to occupy your building. So the freedom of outer space activities means explicitly that you can build stations on the moon. You can even take reasonable precautions, as I said, before you have to allow others in. But you have to allow them in. And the fact that you're able to build a station on the moon does not mean that you own that part of the moon forever and ever. So if you at some point in time, do not continue operations there and you let it fall apart, then after probably just a few years, there is no consensus on this yet, but that's the kind of rules that we need to develop. But maybe after a few years, somebody else can come in and says, well, this is a ruin. This doesn't belong to anyone really anymore. Botswana has long given up on this. Now I'm entitled to build my own thing here. Is this some type of lunar squatter's rights or adverse possession? Yes, with the limitation that when we use those terms in U.S. law, of course, we, it brings in a whole host of quite specific obligations and rights because in U.S. we've been working with these terms for, for centuries almost and the courts have by now very precisely carved out what they mean and what they not mean and etc. etc. And of course, we can't just transplant U.S. law and U.S. jurisprudence on the moon precisely because the moon is not part of the United States. So the best we can say is that to the extent that there is a common denominator between this U.S. system and other major legal systems in the world, many of which have something somewhat similar to the extent that there is this common denominator, that would apply. And actually, that is reflected, if you will, by these clauses in the Outer Space Treaty, which say, well, you can't own the land, but you're free to use it. The fact that you can't own it means that at some point in time, you can't keep others off. You can't keep everyone out forever. Now, whether that means that you can continue to use that place forever and thereby de facto, uh, in fact, can keep everyone out is still an open question. And, and if you allow me to draw a kind of a parallel in terms of satellite communications, we have now agreed that 25 years of occupying one particular orbital slot in the geostationary orbit 
is about right, is about allowable, but once that period is over, in principle, that slot should revert to the open pool, and it might be that others are entitled to replace that slot. So that's kind of the timelines that we are thinking about. What about in terms of uh, some type of buffer zone? I know that, again, back to the ocean, there are the U.S. territorial waters that go out a certain number of miles. Would there be some type of buffer zone around your little space station that would be you know, reasonable for safety reasons or reasonable for privacy reasons or, some, or the like? Yeah, reasonable is a dangerous legal term, of course, and it, it is not mentioned in the Outer Space Treaty. It just talks about reasonable precautionary measures. So there you find actually the word reasonable referenced. The idea of a zone as such is not mentioned, partly because of the fear that that might ultimately somehow spill over into territorial possession, uh, because it may give a sense of, well, that means that I own whatever is in the zone, that I can completely dictate what's going on there, that I treat that as part of my own territory. And that was to be prevented. On the other hand, if you announce a safety zone and it is a reasonable precaution, so it shouldn't be 20 miles, but if it's like 150 meters, that's reasonable. And if you tell everyone, you know, if you come within that zone without prior information without announcing that you're coming into that and without our agreeing on to how you come into that because it may endanger our operations, then we feel ourselves entitled to see this as, a, as an enemy activity or as a dangerous activity and we feel entitled to act accordingly. That's kind of the political uh, situation where we are in there. This is not legally sought out. So, what legally becomes important is the moment that somebody officially announces a safety zone like that, how do other states react? Do they think, yeah, it's, it's perfectly reasonable to announce a safety zone of half a mile, just to quote a number, and, and actually we are going to do that ourselves. And then before you know it, you have customary international law that a safety zone of half a mile is very reasonable. If by contrast, everyone would fall over that first state and say, oh, that's ridiculous, that's a violation of the Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty and of other rules, then probably the first state must gradually withdraw its idea unless it really wants to fight for it, which we're not hoping for in outer space, obviously. But that's kind of the legal tension we are talking about. Professor, I love that you mentioned this concept of customary international law. For those who maybe don't remember uh, from law school or didn't didn't attend law school, uh, customary international law is sort of an alternative means of coming to uh, an accord. Rather than some type of treaty, it just means that in practice, the vast majority of the nations have implemented it. Is that about right? Or have at least given it off as their official opinion that that's the right way to go and behave themselves accordingly. So if all states, without a treaty saying you can have a safety zone of half a mile, start implementing their own zones of half a mile and respect those of others, which is, of course, the flip side of the thing, then you can say, well, they, they act under the assumption that this is now a legal obligation and that's customary international law. That's, by the way, what happened with the law of the sea before it then got enshrined in the treaties. This gives a little bit of hope that there can be a, some practical-minded approach that the laws are, are being, in a sense, tested on the ground as space exploration expands.
Absolutely. And I mean, that's what we see happening, for example, in another area, one of the most important areas of space, largest concerns of space, and therefore also of space law, which is space debris or space junk, right? So there is no legal obligation in the Outer Space Treaty, because back then it wasn't an issue. Nobody thought about the environment and, and you know, this one or two third stage rockets that were floating around, who cares? You know, that was the thinking in 1967. Now, of course, we are in a totally different situation. The articles of the Outer Space Treaty do not even provide for an obligation not to wantonly spoil outer space. The Indians may have raised a big stink when early 2019 they destroyed their own satellite, creating a huge chunk of space debris. But legally speaking, there was no rule prohibiting them from doing that. And there is also no rule to clean up your own mess after yourself. Eh? If you have a satellite out there, which is at the end of its lifetime, um, there's no international obligation requiring you to make sure that it is boosted into deep space, never to be seen again. It's not like hiking on a, in a national park where you're expected to pack in everything that you, you want to use and pack it all out, bring out every little sandwich wrapper that you brought with you. On the other hand, coming back to the customary law issue, what you do see happening is that states have already agreed on guidelines that that's not the proper way of behavior. Guidelines are not, not legally binding. So it's still a recommendation for states, which could be seen as customary law, sort of as a starting point for customary law. What we also see happening is that the guidelines, which in themselves are not legally binding, are now used by various states, the United States, United Kingdom, France, as binding obligations in terms of the licensing regime for their private operators. So one of the guidelines is you shall make plans for an afterlife disposal of your space object, which is again not a legal obligation internationally speaking, but a recommendation. But you see now that if in the US you want to have a license for a launch or for a space operation, the regulatory agency is going to require you, well, what is your plan for afterlife disposal? And if the plan that you show to them doesn't satisfy their concerns, you don't get a license. So at the private national level, it starts to become already a binding legal obligation, which going back to customary international law at some point in time may lead to the conclusion that apparently the United States considers it now a matter of law that you can't just leave your satellite up there, you have to do something about it at the end of lifetime. And if you have more countries along the same lines, then you get customary international law. So that's a process, I think, I hope, which we're in the middle of right now. So while there's no current law, say for example, banning pollution on the moon or, or littering on the moon, perhaps we're well under the way of creating one through customary international law. Absolutely. And an interesting thing is if you look at this most uh, novel feature of the Artemis Agreements and the Artemis Accords. Uh, Artemis is, of course, the NASA program planning to land the first woman on the moon uh, and the next man. And they want to do that with international cooperation. They have already agreed with four other countries to cooperate. And in the principles under which the Artemis Accords should be operated, the idea is we should not pollute the moon. So again, NASA cannot dictate the Italian or the Japanese space agency how they behave because there is no international rule, as you rightly point out, as of yet. But if NASA starts to behave like that in the context of the Artemis Accords, and if its partner starts to operate like that, 
again, this can form the nucleus for five or ten years down the road saying, well, hey, now we have a customary international law obligation. You cannot pollute the moon anymore. So this is, again, a, a very interesting example of that process going on as we speak. And uh, are any of these nation states consulting their, their local space lawyers to get some insights onto how to more beautifully or more elegantly preserve this customary law? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I hope it is the case in, in a number of countries where I can't really see that happening. But as part of the University of Nebraska program, we are constantly involved in discussions with the regulatory authorities and the agencies and the Hill and the private operators on how to move this thing forward. So yes, certainly in the US context, uh, there is a major role for us space lawyers uh, to be involved. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the moon. Now, just like here on Earth, all lunar acres are not created equally, some aspects of the moon or some areas of the moon are considered much more valuable. Right. And, and that can be either from a scientific perspective, uh, what we call the dark side of the moon, which is, of course, really the far side of the moon, is very interesting for science because at that point, part of the moon because it's unseen from the earth. You have no interference whatsoever, either in terms of light or radio waves or anything else coming from the moon. So if you want to do deep planetary research from the far side of the moon, you're in an absolute paradise of silence and you can you, the only things you see or hear are coming from deep space. Uh, if you look at the commercial interests, obviously they are interested in places where there might be water, where there might be minerals, places where in terms of the light and darkness or the, the heat and cold conditions, it's easier to operate. The temperatures between night and day on the moon can differ from, I don't know, plus 150 to minus 150. It's an enormous range, which means that uh, your equipment, if you want to do something there, has to be able to work both in an extreme heat environment and in an extreme cold environment. And if you can find places where somehow, because you're in a crater or because you're in, in, in all the time in sunlight or all the time in outside of the sunlight, can sort of eliminate at least parts of those enormous fluctuations, those might be interesting as well. So yes, there's a lot of variation in the value of the moon. I'm just thinking you mentioned the incredible value of the dark side of the moon for scientific research because you're undisturbed. Well, you might soon find yourself disturbed by one of these other states who's setting up their listening portal or their listening station, which might perhaps interfere. True. Well, there are also rules about interference. If you talk about radio interference, the International Telecommunication Union has a whole system for trying to provide that security against interference. It goes too far, far into detail to discuss here right now. But if you go through all the hoops that the ITU requires, then at the end of the day, every space operator has a set of frequencies which he is entitled to use basically without being interfered with by anyone else. So if interference happens, there is an ITU system for trying to solve that. And you have a legal right, which if necessary, you can defend in an international court or an international arbitral tribunal. The other side of interference, when it comes to physical interference, is something more difficult and the Outer Space Treaty only provides for a ge very general principle, namely that you have to consult if that happens, which doesn't necessarily deliver a solution, as you can imagine.
All right, a quick break for those who are listening for MCLE credit. The code for this interview is 03-2719-032719. And now back to the interview. You mentioned ice on the moon and there is at least ice found on the poles or maybe it's more concentrated on the poles. Does this give a sort of first mover advantage to the early explorers like the United States or, or perhaps uh, Europe or India uh, to get to these more valuable areas first and set up their stations in advance of other explorers? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, at the same time, this sounds maybe a little bit frightening, uh, first comer takes all. I think in reality it's not going to be that dangerous because if you think practically speaking, we are not able to build space stations yet which cover hundreds of square meters or even larger. So it may well be that let's say the Chinese are first there and that they build a station there, but then going back to our discussion on safety zones, they can't then simply say 20 miles around this station is everybody has to keep out because this is a Chinese keep out zone. That is certainly not reasonable. And since we presume that those fields are of a considerable size, it would certainly allow the next one being the US and the next one after that being the Russians and the next one after that being Europeans to set up another station maybe a mile away or a mile and a half away still able to tap into the same water resource. Uh, I'm not a scientist this has to be validated by scientists but that's what I would expect to happen. So if you keep your strict eye on the limitation of these zones to what is necessary for safety as opposed to what it might be desirable for grabbing it all and keeping it all to yourself, then I think there's a fair chance that you won't have the first comer takes all, but it still leaves the point, of course, that countries like Botswana, which you mentioned earlier, may be too late in the game uh, or may be only left with the crumbs of the table. And there might be at some point in time we might need to think about that. I'll just take the devil's advocate position for a moment. When I think, you know, with my entrepreneurial cap, you know, what makes for a successful business, sometimes people describe a moat, some type of barrier to entry. It's hard to think of a more daunting moat than, you know, thousands of miles of empty space and billions of dollars of startup costs. Absolutely. Well, but that works two ways. It namely also works in the direction that if you are interested in spending those billions because you see a chance to make a profit at the end of the day, which of course is what private enterprise is all about, you also want to make darn sure that whatever you harvest there, you can sell to everyone around the world. So it is in the private operator's interest and therefore also its own country that there is no fundamental opposition in the rest of the world as to seeing this as kind of stealing or illegal squatting or whatever term you want to give it. Which means that there is a balance between the interests of the first comer in being given free reign as possible and the need also for that first operator to be recognized as a bona fide operator, as a legitimate operator, as recognizing broader public interest in space. Because if it does not, he may be the first to get there and he may all harvest all that he wants, but as soon as he moves to outside of his state, 
he will be treated as if he's selling blood diamonds and be forced to give it all up, right? So there's an interesting, if you allow me a, a minute or two to explain, we talked about the, the maritime solution and the United States not being part of this international regime for the harvesting of resources from the ocean floor. Well, there was a number of years ago, a very interesting case where Lockheed Martin, as you obviously know, one of the largest U.S. corporations was very interested in mining the deep seabed floor. Now, they could have gone the easy route. They could have said, well, we are a U.S. company. The United States is not party to that international regime, so we don't have to go through all these hoops. We just go for a U.S. deep seabed mining license, and since the U.S. authorities are very friendly to us, we will only be faced with the minimum of requirements and burdens, and we're good to go. But they realized that the rest of the world being tied in to the regime of the Law of the Sea Convention would likely consider whatever they would take from the ocean floor, again, as blood diamonds. They wanted to make sure their market was as big as possible. They established a daughter entity in the United Kingdom, which was party to that uh, agreement. And that daughter entity went through the extra hoops to get a license because now they could show to the rest of the world, this is very legitimate, right? <laughs> and that same kind of balance I think private operators in outer space have to keep in mind as well, because if you spend that much money, you can't afford to cut off 60% of your potential market. Let's talk about uh, mining. And we've talked a little bit about the land or where you can set up your station. Are we pretty clear? Are we, are we all on the same page that what you take off the moon can be owned by an individual state and then perhaps owned by individual companies? Pretty sure is a little bit too far, I'm afraid to say. The United States started this discussion five years ago when they formally recognized these rights of private operators under a US license to mine those resources and to take them home. Since then, we've seen that the Luxembourg and the United Arab Emirates have agreed upon similar laws and, you know, not accidentally, I was part of the teams advising them to do so. Maybe I'll jump in for our audience who may have detected a subtle accent. The Netherlands is your original home. That's absolutely right. And my country was a little bit more hesitant, but meanwhile, there are a group of European countries which are discussing with Luxembourg how to make sure that all this happens in the context of uh, duly extended rules protecting the environment, protecting safety and protecting security, which of course in itself also includes a principled recognition that it should be allowed under certain rules. You see the Chinese engaging in those discussions as well. And you see that NASA, through its Artemis Accords, also tries to promote this general idea. So if other countries want to cooperate with NASA and will, to a certain extent, piggyback on NASA's activities for doing these lunar exploration activities, manned lunar exploration activities, they have to sign up to the principle that indeed private operators, if appropriately licensed, can go there and harvest those resources. So I do see a gradual trend in the right direction, what I consider the right direction, but we are not there yet because there's still a number of countries, Russia first of all, who politically speaking oppose that. I'm not sure how long that opposition is gonna last, but it's still there. And meanwhile, I read that Russia did auction off some of its own lunar rocks for, uh, to private citizens who were willing to buy it. 
And to go even one step further, when it comes to the Russians, they announced Venus was a Russian planet, which to me reads that they claim Venus, not just the, any natural resources thereof, which is already pretty debatable to claim resources ahead of actually going there. Uh, there is a difference between going there, getting them out, and then saying them, this is mine, or saying they are mine and I'm going to go there in two years from now. But they actually claim the whole planet. So I fairly wow. think that the Russians cannot complain about a well-guided, well-regulated private sector operation on the moon harvesting those resources. And barring some unforeseen, currently unforeseen Russian expansion here on Earth, it would be hard to imagine that simply claiming it, I've got dibs on Venus, will withhold uh, legal mustard. Exactly. As you mentioned earlier, according to the Outer Space Treaty, the rules on Venus would ostensibly be the same as those on the moon, which is that all the nations own it and thus no individual nation can claim it. Absolutely. The Outer Space Treaty just speaks about celestial bodies and it includes the moon, which is, of course, a sui generis body completely on its own. It's the only companion that the Earth has, but it also includes planets. Uh, it includes asteroids, meteoroids and things like that. Every hard rock floating in outer space is covered by that provision. For more legal explainers and interviews with the Titans of Law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash ILMCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Illinois MCLE podcast. <laughs>